0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series, The Triumph of the Lamb, today with a message titled, Preparing for the Bowls of God's Judgment. So turning your Bibles to Revelation chapter 15, verses 1 to 8, as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: As I speak these words today... It's not been that long ago since a false emergency warning went out over Hawaii, informing everyone that there was an incoming missile and it was not a drill. You know, some 35 minutes later, the people of Hawaii were told that it had been an error and that no missile was coming. But you can imagine the anxiety for those 35 minutes. Most thought that the North Koreans had shot a nuclear missile in the direction of Hawaii and they were going to die. My dear friend and colleague Phil Calloway was there on a much needed vacation with his wife Ramona, and he experienced all of that firsthand. And if you don't know Phil, he's the host of Laugh Again, which is a part of the wider ministries here at Back the Bible. Let me quote to you the words that Phil wrote me. He said, what a fascinating study in how your worldview affects your response to impending death. Some went crazy and began running and screaming. Some loudly cursed President Donald Trump. One guy pulled off a manhole cover and pushed his children down the ladder. We ended up having good talks with people about God. Who knew that the end of the world would be so invigorating? Well, Phil went on to say that he and his wife and his son and his daughter-in-law and his grandson, while they all went out for breakfast. He thought since it was his last breakfast, he might want something extravagant, but instead he just settled on a peanut butter and honey on toast. And he engaged everyone who would listen With the gospel. Well, indeed. I read Phil's email with great interest. You see, Psalm 46, verses 1 to 2 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Revelation 15 opens the door to the end of the world. Let me see if I can explain where we are in our study of the book of Revelation. I've argued that from my understanding of Revelation, the seven seals that make up the earlier part of this book are a description of the world from the time of the resurrection of Christ all the way until the end. I then argued that the seven trumpets mark the time of the Great Tribulation. But I noted that back in Revelation 10, verse 7, we were told, But in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. And then in Revelation 11, verse 15, we read about the sounding of the last of the seven trumpets. And unlike the sounding of the six trumpets that preceded it, the last trumpet sounds, and there is no woe or plague that follows. All there is is an announcement that Christ will reign forever and ever. And for these reasons, it's my view that there's a pattern that's developed through the three sets of sevens that we find in Revelation. The breaking of the seventh seal opens the scroll, and the contents of the scroll is the unfolding of the plan of God leading to the consummation of the kingdom. Well, if that's too complicated, let me say it again. The contents of the seventh seal is the sounding of the seven trumpets. Well, in the same way, I would argue that the content of the seventh trumpet or the plague that follows the blowing of the seventh trumpet, that plague is the seven bowls. But as we've seen, before the bowls are poured out onto the earth, and by the way, with these bowls, the wrath of God is ended, yet, yet before these bowls are poured out, we're given an interlude in the book. Revelation has a number of interludes, and as we've seen, chapters 12 to 14 are an extended interlude. That interlude consists of seven visions that John saw, visions that explain the spiritual warfare that's being waged and the great hope of the church. Now, having explained spiritually what's going on on earth, John now returns us back to the moment the seventh trumpet was blown. With the blowing of the seventh trumpet, seven angels appear, and they're ready to pour out the contents of seven bowls onto the earth. But again, as before, John is not quite so quick to get us back to the action. He still has something very important to say to the redeemed, the saints, to the people of God, the blood-bought church of Jesus Christ on earth. Well, let's start reading our text, Revelation 15, verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. The word sign is the key word. Now, you might remember that the author of Revelation is also the author of the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, John explains the miracles of Jesus as signs. That is, they're events that are not explained simply by looking at the event itself. Another way of saying that would be to say that when Jesus did miracles— those miracles pointed to a greater reality. They displayed that Jesus was the great I am. He's he's the one who rules nature. He's the one who crushes the power of demons. He's the one who's both with God and is God at the same time. So a sign is an event which draws your attention to a greater reality. And so seeing the seven angels with seven plagues, John recognizes that their appearance is a sign, but it's a sign of what? Well, according to verse 1, when these seven bowls are poured out, the wrath of God is finished, or the wrath of God is satisfied. And so what John wants to communicate is that when the seven bowls are poured out, this event is a sign of the coming of final judgment. It's that simple. See, at the very end of the tribulation, God will so pour out wrath on this earth that the earth's fate will be sealed. Well, very well. So let's keep reading. Verses 2 to 4. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. So John sees two things. First, he sees a sea of glass, and then second, he sees a great company of overcomers who are singing before the throne. So let's take them one at a time. The sea of glass is no doubt the same sea of glass that we encountered back in Revelation chapter 4, verse 6. There we read, And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal." And so when John says he saw a sea of glass, we know exactly where he is. He's before the throne room of God with God himself seated on his throne. This is the place of glory. This is also the place from where God rules over all things. But something is added to the scene in Revelation 15 that's not there in Revelation 4. You see, Revelation 15 says the sea of glass on this occasion is mingled with fire. So I assume that indicates the fire of judgment, fire of God's righteous anger. So if you think about it, this moment is indeed a long-awaited and at the same time an awe-inspiring moment. The crystal sea of glass indicating the exalted nature of the throne and emphasizing that God is set apart from his creatures, a sea so pure that it symbolizes God's holiness, now becomes filled with fire. God now, out of His holiness, directing the full fury of His anger against all of human sin. Well, how much sin is there in the world? Well, every single moment on earth, human beings blaspheme God in millions upon millions of ways. And up till now, God has withheld His righteous hand. His patient, enduring mercy has given the human race time, time to come to its senses and repent. But God's patience should never be understood to mean that He is complacent or that He indulges our sin. You see, the mere fact that we as sinning human beings have not been consumed, that fact should not be taken to mean that God is tolerant of our rebellion. He's not. And furthermore, the day of patience is not going to carry on forever. And since we do not know the day of His wrath, We find ourselves at this moment living under his mercy. The very mercy of God should call us to repent and turn to him. And now beyond the fact that the sea of glass is mixed with fire, we now focus on the second thing that John sees. He sees the full number of all of those who have conquered the beast standing before the throne. And we need to ask ourselves here, who are these people? Now there are those who are going to argue that what we have here is what some have called the pre-wrath rapture of the church. Now that would be a group of Bible teachers who argue that the rapture of the church comes just prior to the great outpouring of the wrath of God. So they argue that we're not going to be spared the wrath of the beast, but we are going to be spared the wrath of God. And so they often point at this very passage to say, you see, right before the final outpouring of God's wrath, right before the bowls of wrath are poured out, God suddenly raptures his church. So is that true? And is that what this passage is trying to communicate? We'll see more about that when we come back.
0: As we begin to reflect on the Easter season, we want to help you dig deeply into the significance, drama, and ultimate selfless sacrifice of Jesus. First, listen intently to Dr. Newfeld's new two-week Easter series beginning Monday, March 18th. That can be heard on this station, online at backtothebible.ca, or by downloading the podcast or Back to the Bible Canada's mobile app. Also, we want to encourage you in a special way by offering you Lee Strobel's book, A Case for Easter, as our free gift. In this book, Strobel makes a thorough investigation into three critical Easter questions. Was Jesus really dead after his ordeal on the cross? Was his tomb actually empty on that first Easter morning? And did credible people subsequently encounter him? I think you'll find Strobel's book enlightening and deeply inspiring. So call us today for your free copy at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: I've consistently, in my study of Revelation, I've tried to avoid identifying when it is that the rapture will happen. I've tried to make the point that the book of Revelation itself does not address this issue outside of to say that that when Jesus comes, we will be with him. And so I try to avoid the issue of when we will be taken up to be with the Lord as best as I can. See, I recognize that those of you listening to me will will no doubt have a number of different views on this matter. And I don't think it's my job to wade into that debate. In my view, it's needlessly dividing to believers. So I don't think that this is the point in time in which the rapture occurs. See, from my understanding of this book, the key to who these are, well, that's found back in chapter 12, verse 11. It says, and they conquered him, for they did not love their lives unto death. See, since Revelation 15 verse 2 says this company before the throne are those who conquered the beast, the natural reading of this text is that these are those Christian martyrs who were martyred by the Antichrist. As the martyrs gather before the throne, fire appears in the glass. God orders his angels to finish the job, finish the wrath of God on the kingdom of the beast. But John's not done. He wants to tell us something about this company of martyrs. They're singing, they're worshiping. But what is it they're singing? Well, according to verse 3, they're singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Well, the song of Moses no doubt refers to the song that Moses taught Israel to sing, and it's a song that's recorded in Exodus chapter 15. Many of us will recognize it immediately because it begins with the words, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he is thrown into the sea. Now, this is the song that Israel sang as the Egyptian army lay dead at the bottom of the Red Sea. Now they've been delivered. And the song of the Lamb, well, that must be a song of praise to Jesus for their salvation. So, in my view, these two songs become one song. God has delivered them from the oppressor by the blood of the Lamb. Now, as to the actual song they sing... Well, a close examination shows that the song itself is made up of, well, first, two statements about God, and then following that a conclusion or a point of application, and then not being satisfied with the two statements about God followed by an application, the song ends with three statements telling us why the application is necessary. Are you confused up till now? Well, don't worry. I'm going to explain it as we go. First, notice the two statements that these martyrs sing about God. The first is, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. See, they sing that all that God has done, all these things are to be praised. The second statement they make about God is, Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Now, you're going to notice that they acknowledge that God is the true King of the nations. He's always ruled. His reign is an everlasting and an unstoppable reign. It's not just that God is the ruler. His rule over this world is blameless. It's praiseworthy. And if you think about it, that's quite a line to sing. I mean, after all, if God rules everything, and these saints have just been martyred by the beast, you might think that they might be overwhelmed with complaints against God. But they're not. They're overwhelmed with how just the ways of God are. See, can you learn from that? Well, listen, we can all learn from that, how easy it is for some of us when we go through very difficult days to complain to God. But once we become convinced that all God's ways are just and true, great and amazing, well, our worship becomes energized. God has a purpose in all that he does. All of his works are for his glory and for our long-term good. God would never allow you to walk through a dark valley were it not for the fact that He knows that this valley is the very thing that you need to maximize your eternal long term joy. And these saints now realize that and they're overwhelmed with songs of praise and gratitude. This is why they express their satisfaction in the nature of God. Well, now that they've done that that is, they've expressed their satisfaction in the nature of God They come to the point where they want to make application to that. So beginning with verse 4, we read, Who will not fear you and glorify your name? Now, I want you to notice that what we have here is what we might call a literary form, which is often found in the Old Testament. So, for instance, consider the very familiar words of Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 4. There we read, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Now, I hope you see that bearing our griefs and carrying our sorrows are not two different things. It's saying the same thing twice, using different words to help fill in the meaning. That's often been called Hebrew parallelism. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. See, that's the same thought, and it's being expressed twice, both for emphasis and to help us see the depth of the Messiah's suffering, saying it twice in different words. It's called parallelism. So look at the application again. Who will not fear you? That's the first line. And then the parallel line. Who will not glorify your name? Fearing God is to stand in awe of God. Glorifying him is expressing his worth, his his majesty. You see, we fear God when we glorify Him, and we glorify God when we fear Him. Both words are making a restatement, both fear and glorify. And here's the point. Once we acknowledge that all God's ways are just and true, even our suffering, we then fear and glorify Him. We worship Him by being overwhelmed with His greatness. We don't complain against Him. We don't tell him we're disappointed in him. We worship, we fear, we glorify. That's what these martyrs teach us. And then three reasons for doing so. First, you alone are holy, they say. Second, in the end, all the nations will worship you, they say. And third, in the end, your righteous acts will be revealed. And so the scene is set. God has called, and the seven angels holding the seven bowls of God's wrath are now prepared to end the earth's rebellion against Him. The martyrs standing before the throne at the threshold of the end of this world's rebellion begin to worship, singing songs of delight in God for their redemption. Now to verses 5 to 8. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chest. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. I'm overwhelmed with the solemnity of this moment. Now we have already, back in Revelation 11, verse 19, seen the first mention of the temple in heaven, which revealed the Ark of the Covenant. See, the thought is that when the sanctuary is opened in heaven, God is displaying that he keeps covenant. His promises are always fulfilled. And then God shows how he keeps his promises. Seven angels now emerge, and as each one emerges, one notices their clothing. They're dressed to emphasize formality, the solemn nature of these proceedings. One of the four living creatures that we met way back in Revelation 7 gives each angel a bowl. And one wonders how long this ceremony actually takes. Are the seven bowls large? Does the living creature slowly go back to the place where the bowls are lined up? Does he walk slowly up to each angel with his bowl? Of course, we understand the contents. They're filled with the wrath of God. One can only imagine how carefully such bowls are handled. But eventually, all seven angels now hold seven bowls. We imagine them now walking to a place where, in the proper time, they will pour these bowls out upon the earth. Woe to the earth! Whatever suffering occurred at the hands of the Antichrist, this is no match for the suffering that is about to happen. In Exodus 40, verse 34, when Moses had finished overseeing the building of the tabernacle, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and for a time, no one could enter. When Solomon finished dedicating the temple, according to 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10, the priests couldn't stand because the cloud filled the temple. Or one thinks of Isaiah 6 and the glory of the Lord filling the temple. At foundational moments, God fills his dwelling place with extraordinary glory, and this is such a moment. I think again of Phil Callaway's description of the potential emergency in Hawaii. Panic, blame, cursing. This will be the reaction of people without God. But the reaction of the martyrs around the throne shows us that in the time when the mountains are being removed, we will not fear. For if we fear God, we fear nothing else. If we fear other things, it is because we do not fear God.
0: John, just relating back to the beginning of your message, you talked about Phil Calloway, and he really is the poster child for for trusting God, even in the most difficult of circumstances. But how do we continue to do that? How do we worship God when times are so difficult?
1: Yeah, I know, because uh, in this passage, of course, we've got martyrs standing before the throne, and they're worshiping. They're filled with joy. Great and amazing. True and just are your ways, O King of the nations. I mean, these are the statements of reveling in God— even while we're going through very difficult times. Uh, we received a letter here uh, uh, this week at, at Back to the Bible, and, and the letter has to do with a woman who comes from another religious background. She just converted to faith in Christ, and all of her friends and her family have turned against her, and she's standing all alone, and she's finding joy in Christ. So, you know, this is, this is the wonder of what it is to be born again. Thanks so much, John. And
0: remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. We teach the Bible. That's at the core of everything we do at Back to the Bible Canada. To do so most effectively, we strive to use every medium possible to share the gospel. In 2017, we introduced an online video program called Truth in Life Today. And that program has since grown and evolved to provide excellence in Bible teaching that connects relevant issues of faith, life, and culture now the big news as of april 2018 truth and life today will become a weekly television program airing on joy tv every friday evening and sunday afternoon and accessible online on youtube among other online options all ready to be discovered at truthandlifetoday.ca so this april join myself dr john Newfeld, and knowledgeable special guests on truth and life today as we speak into issues like religious freedom family heaven and hell, abortion, and much more. For all the details you need, visit truthandlifetoday.ca or call us at
1: 1-800-663-2425.